I've done a lot of things the wrong way and that I think a lot of us put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do things whatever the right way is. You can still succeed even if you don't do everything the way that it's prescribed. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, Jess and I are joined by Adam McRae, the founder of Judo Scale. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Yeah, this is great. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure. I've been a Rails developer since 2006 or seven. Had lots of jobs. I've done some consulting, worked at some product companies. And for the past seven years, I've been running a product called Judo Scale, originally called Rails Auto Scale, which is a third-party auto scaler basically kind of replaces the built-in autoscalers that a lot of platforms have to be more predictable, more reliable, and better controls and all that kind of thing. It was my side project for many years, went full-time on it in 2021. And now that's what I spend my days doing. Can you believe it's been seven years? It's wild, yeah. Love to have you take us back and tell us how you found this concept and especially interested in that early stage of building something on the side and then how you got to a place where you're able to make it your full-time thing. So in 2016, I was working for a company called Agent Pronto, and they basically offer like a concierge service to help find real estate agents. And we were a really small dev team. I had just come on board and moved us, our hosting, from Engineyard to Heroku, which was great. It simplified a lot of things for us, brought our costs way down. It was a great move all around. But we were still spending a lot more than we needed to because our system was primarily just used during the day on like business hours. But we were running eight dynos 24-7. So we knew we wanted some kind of automated scaling up and down. And there were basically two Heroku autoscalers around at that time. Tried them both and just couldn't get them to work very predictably. They were hard to use. They felt clunky. And I just couldn't shake the thought that like all developers, like I can build a better version of this, you know? <laughs> and these other ones, they were Heroku plugins? One was a Heroku add-on and one was a third-party thing that you installed, that you signed up for directly. Ah, okay. Both still around and there's a lot more of them today. But yeah, at the time, there were just two. And at that time, I was already following Nate Berkopek, who's like the Rails performance guru still kind of to this day. And even back then, he was blogging. And I remember him writing about Request queue time. This is the metric above all other metrics that tells you about your server capacity. And these other autoscalers, they were using response time, which total response time, that's going to take into account, you know, slow database queries, just slow requests in general. So it's not really a good measure of capacity, which is why these other autoscalers didn't work all that well. What exactly is request queue time? Like when a request comes in to a load balancer or the Heroku router in this case, the time between that moment and the time that the Rails application actually picks up the request and starts processing it, that is queue time. And when you have a server or a container or a dyno or whatever that's at capacity, can't process any more requests in the moment, that's when requests start queuing up in Puma. And that's when that request queue time increases. And so the resolving request queue time is just a matter of scaling horizontally, adding more servers or containers, what have you. So if, if there's a Puma worker, I guess, 
just sitting idle waiting for a request to come in, what's the request time for that? Is it just like milliseconds? Yeah, yeah. Request queue time in that case is is typically less than five milliseconds. Okay. And then so if they're busy and there's not a free one to pick one up, then it's just waiting, waiting. What's sort of an average that people would want to spin up a new dyno? I think typically if you're seeing request queue times getting over 50, 100 milliseconds, that's a sign that your servers are having trouble keeping up. So when somebody initially installs Judo scale, we kind of default them as their queue time range of being 50 to 100 milliseconds, which just means like if queue time goes above 100, we scale you up immediately. And then when it settles down below 50 for a while, we'll start scaling you back down. And then for like background jobs for work, background workers, it's a different metric, right? Queue time still, but it's a, how does that work? Yeah. In that sense, we still call it queue time. And, but in this case, we're not talking about requests. We're talking about how long do jobs sit in the queue, the sidekick queues before they get picked up to be worked on, which if you have sidekick threads that aren't doing anything, that's going to happen immediately. But if all your sidekick threads are busy, that's when jobs are sitting in your queue. And that's when it's, it's a little harder to have a default that makes sense because it really kind of depends on if you're auto-scaling really urgent queues that need to be all be processed relatively quickly versus lower priority queues where things can be processed within the next 10 minutes and it, and it doesn't matter. But yeah, the concept is totally the same. It's still queue time, but sometimes the naming gets a bit confusing because like in the sidekick UI, it's called latency. So queue time, queue latency, basically meaning the same thing for us. So you were explaining when you were working at this job and you tried out these other ones, you decided I could build this better myself. What happens next? Yeah, really wanted an auto scaler that used this request queue time metric. And I didn't know how well it was going to work. I just like, sounds like it will work great. And I want to see if it will. So in my spare time, I just spiked up a quick proof of concept to see if it would work with our product, Asian Pronto. And so when I launched this thing, and I'm putting launch in quotes because this thing had no front end, you, you could only control it through like a Rails console. There was no multi-tenancy. It was hard-coded to work with only our app. But it was enough of a proof of concept to collect these queue time metrics and have an auto-scaling algorithm that would scale it up and down. And built that in just a few weeks. And it immediately worked great for us, much better than anything else we had tried. So you were monitoring the queue times and then... After certain slow times, or like, I guess, a, a range of slow times, you would connect to the Heroku API and add dynos? Is that how it worked? Exactly. Yeah. So we just had sidekick jobs running every 10 seconds or whatever that, that are going to say, like, how's the queue time now? Is it going up? Is it staying down? And then based on that, reaching out to the Heroku API to scale the app up or scale the app down. And like I said, it was working great for us. I mean, well enough that I was convinced that like there was an opportunity there to actually build a product that I could actually sell. So I reached out to my boss at that time, asked him if I could build this thing in my spare time, would I own it myself? And he's like, yeah, have at it, whatever. A few months later, I had something working with the Heroku add-on marketplace, not available in the marketplace yet. The Heroku add-on marketplace, you got to go through phases. Like you start out in the alpha phase, which means you're not listed in the marketplace but you have to invite people individually to use your add-on and you have to get 10 customers using it there to get to the beta phase, which is when you're actually in the marketplace, but you have a beta badge on it and you can't charge for it yet. You have to get 100 customers there before you can actually get to general availability where you can actually charge for it and stuff. And that took me all of 2017 to get through that alpha and 
beta phase until finally officially launching, generally available in December of 2017. Can you charge customers directly or just like not through the Heroku platform? Not in the add-on marketplace. Yeah, in the add-on marketplace, you have to use Heroku's billing, which is limiting because there aren't things like discount codes. There's no annual plans. Like everything is very regimented. It's monthly billing. You have to define your tiers. And Heroku takes a 30% cut too. So it's not insignificant. But what you get for that is you get your app listed in a marketplace, which is how we've gotten 80 to 90% of our customers. Yeah, that makes sense. Mike Buckby was talking to us about this a few episodes back and talking about that cost as well as like the benefits of being in a marketplace. And I think also just the fact that you get one bill as a customer of Heroku. You've got like one credit card to put in and one bill I'm getting back every month with everything combined. That feels like yeah. the removal of friction in that by itself is worth something. Yeah, it's easier for the customers. So yeah, I mean, a customer doesn't have to worry about putting their credit card into another service or whatever. And it's easier for me too, because I, I didn't have to build billing. I don't have to deal with chargebacks or taxes or any of those things. But more than anything, I mean, the biggest benefit was just having that marketplace presence. Like there's no question in my mind that I wouldn't be talking to you right now if we didn't have that marketplace presence. So I've never really batted an eye at that 30%. It's well worth it to me. So in that year of 2016, you're building this up and finding these initial customers. Where did you get them for that alpha and beta stage? Where were you finding people? So for the alpha phase, when you have to invite people, I was just basically reaching out to friends, reaching out to my network at that point. And at that point, I'm still uncomfortable reaching out to people and asking for things, especially when it's like product related or whatever. Then I was even more uncomfortable. So like I said, like all I needed was 10 customers. Like how hard is it to reach out to 10 people that I know and say, hey, just sign up for this thing. Like you don't even have to really use it. You don't have to pay anything. Like it doesn't sound that hard. It was horrible. Like I hated it. And it took me three months just to get like those 10 initial customers. I get it. So then once I went into beta, so I'm actually listed in the marketplace. At that point, I pretty much just sat back and waited. Again, not a great strategy, which is why it took me six, seven more months to get out of that phase. The irony of all this is, so that was Rails Autoscale, the initial product. Today, it's Judo Scale. And we can talk about the whole rebrand and all that. But when we launched Judo Scale, first of all, you can't rename a Heroku add-on, which was a huge bummer, which meant we either need to stay with Rails Autoscale forever, which I regretted, or launch a new add-on and go through that whole process again. So we opted to launch a new add-on and go through that whole process again. That time around, I had a wider network. I had a little more confidence to like reach out to people and ask for things. And I think it was either a month or less than a month that I reached those 100 customers because I was just like, I just need to rip off the Band-Aid and do this. So yeah, I think if you have a bit of a network you can just make yourself ask for things, it doesn't need to take that long to get through that process. How did you pitch it? Was it simply, hey, would you try this out and help me out? Or was it, hey, I think this would be helpful for your business and here's why? It was a help me out kind of pitch. It was like, hey, I need to get through this threshold so that I can even be able to sell this thing. I made a page on the Judosco website specifically for this. Like, here are the steps you need to do. Click this button. It will take you here. Paste this into your terminal and then you're done. Like, all I need you to do is just take five minutes to do this for me. I think both of those things, the fact that it wasn't a product pitch, it was a please help out a friend kind of a pitch. And I made it really easy. I think those two things were definitely the difference makers. And that was the first time around, not when you switched to Judo Scale? 
Oh, no, that was for judo scale. The first time around, I didn't do any of those things. Okay. I said the first time around, I pretty much just waited, pretty much just waited and hoped that enough people would find it in the marketplace to get me through that beta phase. Eventually it did happen, but it took quite a while. And that was, it was a painful process of I'm running this service and I'm supporting it and I'm paying to host it, but I can't charge anyone for it yet. What was it like figuring out how to build a Heroku add-on? Do they have pretty good documentation and like tutorials? Yeah, their docs are fantastic. And honestly, like the surface area of it is pretty small. You need to build an endpoint in your app that responds to Heroku provisioning uh, an add-on, changing the plan and uninstalling it. So you need to support a few of those endpoints. And that's about it. Okay, so you have a separate Rails app that's basically the real application. And then you create a Heroku add-on and then that talks to your application. It's all one application. So yeah, our JudoScale application is a Rails application and that's where all the JudoScale functionality lives. And it also has these API endpoints that Heroku hits when somebody needs to provision a new, you know, installs the add-on and uninstalls it or whatever. You don't need to run the app on Heroku either. Like we could be running our Rails app anywhere as long as it responded to those API endpoints. It would work as a Heroku add-on. Probably have to have 20 customers if you run outside of Heroku. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Heroku would obviously take 50% instead of 30% from the marketplace. <laughs> so after you get to that full launch, what's happening next? How do you turn on the gas? If I'm being honest, I never really turned on the gas. I <laughs> think all the interesting things kind of happened in that like initial like 2016 building it and 2017 getting it through into the Heroku marketplace and all that. From then on, the next few years were pretty uneventful, boring years of me just slowly adding features, making improvements, putting out fires, supporting customers, completely ignoring marketing, and just like allowing it to grow slowly as people found it in the marketplace, which is not an approach that I would recommend to anyone. I would recommend, hey, you do a little marketing. It's not a bad idea. But I just basically sat back and waited. And eventually it did grow to a point where I was able to go full time on it. I had patience and it grew slowly over time, which I said it it absolutely wouldn't have done if it wasn't for the Heroku marketplace. And I'm a huge proponent of if you're going to launch your first product, or especially if it's if you're going to build something on the side, like marketplaces are a great place to do that because you get a little bit of that free marketing, a little bit of free exposure that otherwise you're completely on your own to get people to pay any attention to you at all. That makes sense. And I'm thinking like right now for Rails developers, the ones I'm thinking of are Heroku and Shopify. Are there others that you have in your head, platforms that people build on? So yeah, like GitHub has a marketplace. I think a lot of the website builders like Wix, I think has a marketplace. There are lists of them online, which I don't know offhand where they are, but I know I've seen them. There's tons of products that have marketplaces of various kinds of add-ons. The things that I think are important are you want to choose a product where the customers of that product are already trained to use the marketplace to find add-ons. Like Heroku users are used to finding add-ons in the Heroku marketplace. Same with Shopify users. I don't know if like GitHub, for example, like I don't know how many GitHub users really dive into the marketplace to yeah. look for tools and stuff like that. So for me personally, I probably wouldn't choose to build something in the GitHub marketplace for that reason. That said, I know there have been some successful products that started out in the GitHub marketplace. I saw a tweet where you sort of pinned at the top where you give like the highlights of getting started, becoming profitable. 
and then you hit 10K in MRR. Before that, when you were 2K, 3K, 4K, and so on, what point did you start thinking like, I can make this a full-time thing? And do you remember when that realization occurred? I think the realization occurred when I built that first proof of concept and saw how useful it was. So you believed in it from the beginning? At that point, I was pretty convinced there's something here that could definitely be useful enough and valuable enough to eventually become my full-time thing. I thought it was going to happen within a year or two. Instead, it took five years, but I was pretty far off there. But again, I did no marketing, so that's what you get. After the first couple of years, I was kind of shocked at how slowly it was growing. I definitely sort of fell into that trap of thinking, you know, if you build something really useful, people will come and it'll just take off. And of course, that's not how it works. It happens slowly. But I think even through that time, it was slow growth, but it was pretty steady growth. And I saw the trajectory where if I was patient, it would eventually pass my day job salary and I could safely go full time on it. I saw a funny tweet the other day about the founder of Okta. He created some PowerPoint slides to present to his wife about how he wanted to quit his job and start Okta. Did you have to create PowerPoint slides to your wife's? Go full-time? No, but again, patience was key. It's the kind of thing where I had to present the idea and then just let it settle in for a while. Because we're both very risk-averse. I've never been independent. I've always had a salary job with benefits and all that stuff. And at the time that I finally did go full-time on what was Rails Autoscale at the time, I was the sole income in the house. My wife was back in school training to be the dietitian that she is now. So yeah, I, I was the only income, I had never been independent before. And, and I'm talking about, yeah, I want to go on this thing. We'll have to figure out insurance on the independent market for our family of four. We'll have to pay all the self-employment taxes and all that fun stuff. It'll be great. Uh, <laughs> it was scary for both of us. And one thing that was really significant that helped both of us over that hump was the beginning of 2021, the product revenue was sort of getting close to parity with my salary. So it was kind of getting to that point where it's like, we can start thinking a bit more seriously about this right now, but there's no real cushion there. So we still didn't feel great about it. That is when I applied for Tiny Seed, which Tiny Seed, they call it an accelerator for bootstrappers. So they basically give you a little bit of funding. I think it's public that they give like 120K for a single founder, a little bit more if you have multiple founders. And then they take 10 to 12% equity in the company. And then you also get a bunch of mentoring with Tiny Seed. You get this Tiny Seed community and all this stuff. So I applied for it thinking it was a long shot and it was a long shot, but thinking that if I could just have this financial cushion, it would make this decision a whole lot easier. And we both sleep a whole lot better at night making the jump and it get accepted into Tiny Seed, joined Tiny Seed in May of 2021. That was when I went full time and it was an easy decision at that point. Even if I didn't get accepted into Tiny Seed, I still think I would have gone full time in 2021, probably later in 2021. But yeah, it, it made it a lot easier for sure. I'm sure it sort of helped validate your idea and that there were other people willing to invest in it and get behind you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like most people, I've certainly had plenty of imposter syndrome thinking like, I really have no idea what I'm doing. How is this thing even working? And like I said, I went five years without really doing any marketing. So I've never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur who, who knew what he's doing. Honestly, I, I don't even really think of myself as much as an entrepreneur, as just like a developer who likes to build products and was able to find one that 
had enough legs to support itself. I think a lot of us have been in that boat. Like I definitely sense that myself. I want to mainly build products. I don't think of myself as someone that's great at starting businesses or something like that, but I love building stuff and like to build things that do well financially. So I get that. I think a lot about motivation. Why am I doing this thing versus why are some other... I know a lot of entrepreneurs are building businesses, maybe so that they can retire early, make a lot of money. Maybe they want to travel the world. I don't necessarily care about any of those things. I'm not a world traveler. I don't want to retire early. I actually like working. For me, it's always been about, I love building things and I don't have a lot of patience for building things that I don't care about. I wanted to have complete control over what I'm building and the tools I'm using to build it. And the only way I'm going to get to do that is if I'm the one in charge building my own product. And so that's always been kind of my motivation from the beginning. And I think because of that, I've made some choices along the way that no doubt have left money on the table, but I've just kind of been intent on running the business my way, even if it's not the right way, putting right in quotes. I like that quote that Daniel Vasallo, I think I've quoted it here before, but he basically says something about businesses should be built to make your life better and making the most money or getting the most prestige isn't always the highest end goal. But that's something that I have to remind myself of every now and then, that the business exists to make my life better. I don't need to grow the business at all costs. Good to be reminded of that. Looking back a little bit, when you were getting close to that threshold of, oh, maybe this could be my full-time thing, I got to imagine that you're probably having to support the product a lot more than before with the number of customers you had. Was there a point where it was painful to try to straddle your full-time job in the side project at that point? Was that becoming more difficult and it felt like you had to make that jump? Or could you have managed to keep going for a while and kind of delay that? The support burden of judo scale is kind of shockingly low. Even today with about thousand teams using it, I probably get usually less than five emails a week for support. And the nice thing is that lets me kind of dive in deep with each of those customers and really give them a lot of personalized attention, which I love to do. But yeah, I could have kept doing this thing as a side project very easily, just sort of on autopilot, more or less. Certainly there are times where things were on fire when it was stressful, having a full-time job and a side project. And I'm the only one who's going to put out those fires. Those were stressful times, but those are relatively few and far between. And for the most part, the product runs itself with very little support. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of able to spend my time doing dev and these days trying to do, do a little bit of marketing as well. Speaking of marketing, you rebranded to Judo Scale, And I was just looking at your product on Heroku. And I love all the product names. You got like Brown Belt, Yellow Belt, Black Belt. So tell us where that idea came from and also about the rebranding. It was probably around the time that I joined Tiny Seed that I was thinking about how the product really did not need to be Rails specific. Up until that point, we only supported Rails. But the reality is like, I mean, auto-scaling a Django app is no different than auto-scaling a Rails app. You just need, instead of a Ruby gem, you need a Python package that's going to capture that request queue time and report those metrics to our API. But I was kind of in a bind because I'd named the product Rails Autoscale. And that's going to be a turnoff for anybody who's not a Ruby developer. So I knew that I wanted to 
rename the product. And like I said, I learned that you can't rename an add-on on Heroku, which was a huge bummer. The name Judo Scale kind of came from 37 Signals wrote about long ago, kind of one of their shorthands that they use internally. If they want to just take the most efficient solution to a problem, how can we judo this or something like that? That had always kind of stuck in my head as like a fun little shorthand. So then I was thinking of new names for the business. Judo Scale, I thought just had a nice ring to it. So I thought, yeah, let's go with that. And then once I had the product name, I needed to think of pricing tiers. I'm like, well, how, about, <laughs> how about I look up what the actual judo belt classification is? Nice. I know nothing about judo, by the way. I've never done it in my life. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did the product breakdown classifications match perfectly to the different belt classifications? Or did you have to invent a few? Or did you leave a few out? I think I might have left a few out. Yeah, but it was pretty close, okay. honestly. The number of tiers that we had in our pricing aligned fairly closely with the number of belts, which was convenient. Perfect match. The rebrand was a hard time. So this was 2022. Spent a lot of time building Judo Scale because as part of this, there was a lot of early on decisions that I'd made on the back end and on, on the front end. I basically treated it almost as a rewrite. So I rebuilt a lot of stuff on the back end, hired a designer to help me rebuild and redesign the front end and launched Judo Scale in the Heroku app store as a whole new add-on with a whole new look and all this stuff, even though it was actually still just one Rails app powering both Rails Auto Scale and Judo Scale. There were just some different front-end stuff and different back-end stuff going on. But from that point, I kind of had to figure out, okay, we're running these two separate apps. They look different. I either need to shut down the Rails Auto Scale add-on, but then like all the customers we have on there, like I can't just move them over. They would need to uninstall it and reinstall Judo Scale. So kind of made the decision to leave both add-ons in the Heroku marketplace, even though on the back end, they're the same thing. And did a bunch of refactoring so that both apps use the same front end and same back end and all that stuff, just all that. And then like moving forward, we're like, it's confusing to have these two brands now. We need to choose one and roll with it. And for a time, I almost sort of regretted the judo scale move. Like I love Rails. I love Ruby. I love the community. What if we just stuck with that and fully embraced it? and for about a month, maybe two months, that was the direction we were headed. We were actually going to go full on back on Rails Autoscale. And then I had regrets about that. Talked to some advisors, talked to some friends. They're like, dude, there's so much more opportunity in Judo Scale. Like, why not? So I finally was convinced, yeah, okay, let's go all in on Judo Scale. I think I was really more than anything just afraid of leaving Rails Autoscale behind. I think there was some sentimental value there. There's the fact that all these customers had already signed up for Rails Autoscale. I was afraid of the rebrand, I think, was what it boiled down to. But once finally decided, okay, are going all in on Judo Scale, that's when we changed the messaging on our website. So railsautoscale.com now just redirects to Judo Scale, and there's a page that kind of explains the rebrand. Both add-ons are still in the Heroku marketplace, and that's not going to change, which is confusing, and I don't like it. But the reality is anybody can sign up for either one and the pricing is the same, the product is the same. So yeah, it was a tough time. I'm really happy where we ended up, except having two add-ons in the marketplace. But I'm really happy with the Judo Scale brand moving forward. It feels right. It's a good name. And I don't want to go through that again. Yeah, <laughs> about. Do you think there are any benefits though to having started with Rails Auto Scale? Like I just wonder, was... Having that niche and focusing on, hey, specifically Rails apps, hey, specifically Rails devs. And since you were in that space already, do you think that helped in a way that if you'd started with Judo Scale, you might not have had like a really clear vertical or something? I don't know if 
I do think that it helped, but it's so hard to know how much. I think there's an appeal like as a Rails developer, like, ooh, here's this product tailor-made for Rails applications. That's pretty cool. How much of a difference that made is really hard to say. I mean, if I had it all to do over again, I would start with Pseudoscale just to avoid this whole rebranding pain. But I can definitely see how the name Rails Autoscale does have some benefit to it for sure. So Adam, now that you have transitioned to Pseudoscale, outside of Rails apps, what other stacks are people coming with? Do you have any kind of big segments in terms of other types of apps that Pseudoscale is serving? We get quite a few Django and Flask customers so in, in the Python community. And there's a, a background task worker called Celery in the Python community. So and we've got some customers there as well. In terms of integrations, so we have the Ruby integration, we have a Python integration, and we also have a Node package. So we have some Node customers as well. If I'm being honest, our Node package is a bit neglected. So it needs a bit more attention, I think, for us to support more frameworks in the Node ecosystem right now. We just support apps running Express, and we don't get a ton of those. We have customers running PHP apps, most specifically Laravel, that want support. It seems like there's a lot better hosting options in the Laravel community, so I'm kind of surprised <laughs> that they're on Heroku. I'm not sure if or when we'll build PHP integration. Decent bit of folks wanting to use Spring Boot, which is a Java thing, which I don't really know anything about and I'm scared of. So I don't know <laughs> if or when we'll support that either. But yeah, for the most part, it's still the vast majority Rails. And on the background job, it's still mostly Sidekick. But we do get a good bit of folks using Rescue and Good Job and some of the others. That and Python is mostly what we get. My guess is that a lot of people are finding out about Rails Autoscale or Judascale now. People like Nate Berkopec, for example, pointing out like you should be using an autoscaler and here's one. Or books or resources or libraries that kind of end up back at your product. Am I thinking about that right? Or is it still mostly people that just, they already had it in mind and they just end up scanning Heroku marketplace and saying, oh, here's all the autoscalers. I'll pick this one. It's still mostly people who find it in the marketplace. Yeah. We definitely have had some customers who specifically mentioned Nate Berkopec talking about request queue time and all that. But yeah, for the most part, most of our exposure comes from the marketplace. And that's going to be a challenge as we move outside of Heroku. So we recently built an integration with Render and we built an integration with Amazon ECS on AWS so that we can auto scale not just Heroku apps, but apps running on other platforms as well. But yeah, for those that we have no marketplace to go into, so that's when we're going to need to start taking marketing more seriously than we have in the past, which, you know, so we've been trying to pick up on that recently. When I say we, it's, it's me and one other developer who works with me. And our skills are more supplementary than complementary. Like we're both developers who love developing. But at the same time, while we're not marketers, we do love sharing the things that we've learned and we love teaching. So we want to sort of embrace that and just share more through writing and through videos, basically anything that we can that's genuine for us and useful to anyone in our target audience, which is honestly any developer who's hosting on any of these cloud platforms. What was that process like going to render? Is that a week-long project, a couple months? How difficult is something like that? Because it was our first non-Heroku integration, it, uh, took a lot several, of it took several months. Yeah. We just found like 
peeling all these layers of the onion of our app. It's like, oh, here's another place we baked in assumptions about Heroku. So yeah, a lot of refactoring to make our code more platform agnostic. The render part itself was actually really easy. I mean, render has an API much like Heroku does. Render does not have an add-on platform and they don't have billing taken care of like Heroku does. We're going to have to build our own billing, which we actually haven't done yet. So again, we're taking an approach where we're building a proof of concept, letting some early access users try it out and continuing to refine it. And our render integration and our ECS integration are at a point where they're pretty solid, but we have not built billing yet. So that's going to be coming in the next month or two so we can actually charge for those products. It seems like you sort of mentioned just a second ago about using education as a way to market, right? That's what I took away from what you're saying, that you and the developer working with you both like to share your learnings or process. And particularly maybe with auto-scaling, its relationship to running performant apps. seems like there's a lot of opportunities there for education. Do you feel like that has changed over the years that you've run Judo Scale? Back in the beginning, in 2017, was there less awareness around auto-scaling and have you found that most people are coming to have an understanding about it now? Or do you feel like it's just as many educational opportunities now? I wish I had a good answer for that. The truth is, I didn't know then and I still don't know now. And that's because I haven't done really any customer research. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. That's not a good thing, but it's the way that I've done it. I built a product that solved a problem that I had and continue to refine it based on problems that I had and feedback from existing customers. But existing customers obviously already know that an autoscaler exists. So I haven't had discussions with people who don't know that an autoscaler exists to know how prevalent that is and how to reach those folks. To our detriment, for sure. I think that's something that would really help us if we had a better understanding of how to reach those folks. And I think our take right now is... If we share some good content that basically helps with general scaling issues, general performance issues, general like what are the differences between these platforms and this kind of stuff, this is content that's not just going to be useful to people who are looking for an autoscaler. It's content that's useful to anybody who's running a production application on these cloud hosting platforms. And through that, we can expose them to concepts like autoscaling. I'm surprised Heroku won't send you a list of all the clients who don't have autoscaling. <laughs> that would be very nice. <laughs> they essentially would be shooting themselves in the foot too, right? Because the goal would be to scale down dinos. Heroku does have their own autoscaler, but they haven't touched it in a very long time. So in a way, our product is competing with something that they have internally. But I know from some folks that they do recommend third-party autoscalers a lot of the time because they're aware that their autoscaler is a bit neglected. What's the craziest story you've seen with people auto-scaling? Do people scale up to like 100 dinos or what's a crazy number? I had read in Heroku's documentation that they'll cap you at 99 dinos. I didn't think I'd ever encounter anyone who would hit against that limit. But yeah, we had a customer who ended up moving away from Heroku because they couldn't scale higher than Heroku's 99 dinos. Blows my mind. (laughs) That's like, I know they have... In their CI stack, you can run your tests in parallel and they have a cap at 32 dinos. Yeah, that seems like an arbitrary number, but so does 99. Right. Yeah. Another question I had was when you were getting into this, did you have any apprehensions about selling to developers? I feel like a lot of times developers are like 
especially open source developers want everything free and they complain a lot. Is that true? Or have you found it to be a good market for you? I think I did have sort of a fear that developers were going to be especially critical or picky, I guess. And I was way wrong on that. From my experience, the customer support that I do on a week-to-week basis, the people who reach out to me are very kind, very thoughtful and open-minded and empathetic. Even when it's stuff that we screwed up, that they're still just super understanding. And I don't know how much of that is just because the developer community is more understanding and empathetic than I realized versus we are very clear that we're just a small team of developers. Like we're not a big company. So I, I don't know. I, th- I think because we're clear about that, when folks do reach out to us, they understand that like they're just reaching out to other developers. They're not going to have to go through some front end customer support rep and then get escalated and, and all this stuff. I think that helps just like set the initial tone of the support conversations that we have. This is kind of a weird question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you see any opportunities in building Heroku add-ons that maybe an add-on that you wouldn't build yourself, but that you'd like to see you wish existed in the add-on marketplace? Or that you're surprised it doesn't exist? The area that's still a continual struggle, not just on Heroku, but anywhere maybe for Rails app in particular, is memory management. And it's a particular challenge on Heroku because of the way they have their dyno tiers. They've got their standard 2x dynos with a limit of one gig of memory that you can blow through pretty quickly, especially with some background jobs. If you don't have them tuned correctly. And the next step above that is five times the cost and not five times as powerful. It's not a tier that we ever recommend. So because of that, memory management is always a challenge on Heroku. and I think there's maybe opportunity there, although I don't know what an add-on for that would look like. I just know that there's still not easy solutions for that. I agree. I wrote a rate task one time when I was having some memory issues to just restart my dynos. <laughs> Is that bad? <laughs> it's, if it worked, it's not bad. <laughs> but the other side of that question is, if I were to build something else today, what would I build? I don't know that I'd build a Heroku add-on. And... That's not to say that I'm not still a big fan of Heroku. We still use Heroku. We still love Heroku. But I will say that the future of Heroku feels murky. And I don't know that if I was starting something new today that I'd bet my business on it in that way. I hope that changes. Yeah, agreed. I hope in a year or two that I can say like, oh yeah, yeah. Heroku is definitely here to stay, feeling great about it. But right now, it's really hard to feel that way. Yeah, it feels a bit tenuous the past year or so. Yeah. And at the same time, say not another platform that is obvious, like an obvious place where, ah, this is the place that we land. Yeah, I don't think there's not an obvious replacement for Heroku yet. I mean, I think Render's trying to do that. Fly is trying to do it a little bit, but they're definitely taking a very different approach, whereas Render is almost a one-for-one replacement for Heroku. But none of them are as easy to use as Heroku yet. None of them are going to let you get an app spun up as quickly and scale it as easily as Heroku yet. They'll probably get there, but they're not there yet. Obviously, last year, they shut down their free plans and it upset a lot of people. And this is what I wanted to say. Like, when that happened, obviously, like, Twitter went crazy. Everybody's like, Heroku's done. They're done. It's day's end for Heroku. Everybody's leaving Heroku. We're leaving Heroku. I can tell you as an add-on owner that everybody didn't leave Heroku. Yeah. That (laughs) people are still signing up for Heroku and Heroku (laughs) is still doing just fine. Certainly, like, all the people who were just running free apps on Heroku left. But obviously, they weren't our customers because you don't need to auto-scale a free app. But... 
those who are running like paid production apps on Heroku, it still works really well. It has its issues. Like customer support is not a great experience there right now. There are dyno tiers. You need some more fine-grained options there. But overall, it's still a good platform that doesn't seem to be going anywhere at the moment. I just don't know that I would feel comfortable betting on it. Speaking of leaving, imagine your product is pretty low churn. Yeah, it is pretty low churn. Obviously, whenever somebody does churn, we send them an email, see if they can share anything with us about why they churned. And by far the most common reason is that they've outgrown Heroku. Most people, it's, yeah, we've moved off Heroku to AWS. And that's, of course, why we built an integration with AWS, because we want to be able to say, that's fine. You can still use Judo Scale on AWS. <laughs> and now we can say that. I like saying your strategy in terms of the way you landed in Rails and Heroku, and then have sort of branched out from there into other stacks and other platforms. And that makes a lot of sense to be able to go after larger customer segments, but also stay with them as they migrate to other places. That was certainly the intention there. Adam, was there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about or anything you wanted to promote or discuss? Yeah, I guess I think the only other point that I would probably want to reinforce before we wrap up is that I feel like I've done a lot of things the wrong way and that I think a lot of us put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do things whatever the right way is, you can still succeed even if you don't do everything the way that it's prescribed. You can carve your own path and do things your own way and still be successful. I love that message. Yeah, this it seems like you've been really good at staying consistent with what you're doing. You're continuing to provide value to your customers, acknowledge that you're not perfect, but you just keep inching it forward and you're patient with it. And you've been rewarded with a lot of success in building this business. That's pretty cool. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate hearing the story about Judo Scale and how you've grown. Is there any place that you'd like to point people to or uh, where can people find you online and find out more about what you're doing? I'm Adam Logic on Twitter, judoscale.com. And yeah, I intend to start publishing some videos to the Judo Scale YouTube channel. So you can... Keep an eye out there. Great. Thanks so much. Thank hey, you, thanks Adam. for having me, guys.